Hello, Convention of State podcast listeners. Normally, we reserve this channel for audio versions of our live broadcast, COS Live and the Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. But as a bonus, we like to occasionally release some historic legacy audio for your enjoyment. Is Convention of State's leftist plot or the plan to save America? In this episode, a panel of Convention of State's experts answer that question in front of a packed room of state legislators at a 2021 conference in San Diego. I'm Rita Peters. I'm the Senior Vice President for Legislative Affairs with the Convention of States Project. And on behalf of our entire organization, I want to thank you for spending a bit of your morning with us. I don't think you will be disappointed in the program. As some of you probably know, the Convention of States Project was founded by Mark Meckler here, along with Michael Ferris, as a grassroots organization with the goal of triggering an Article V convention to propose constitutional amendments on three topics. Imposing fiscal restraints on Washington, limiting the power and jurisdiction of the federal government, and setting term limits for federal officials. So far, we have passed our resolution in 15 states. We are on our way to that magic number of 34. And the interesting thing has been to see how there are these pockets of those on the right who have really aligned themselves with the left to oppose this effort to call for an Article V convention. In fact, some on the right have gone so far as to claim that the Convention of States project is actually a leftist plot funded by George Soros. We have heard that many, many, many times. times, and every time we are just shocked and dismayed by that. So this morning, we are going to dive into that a little bit and explore it. We're going to find out where that came from, and we're going to decide for ourselves whether it's a leftist plot or whether, in fact, it is a plan to save the nation, the very plan that the Founding Fathers gave us. So I'm going to start to introduce our panelists and let them each have a few minutes to give some opening remarks. And then following their remarks, we're going to try to reserve almost half of our time this morning for questions and answers because we generally find that is the most useful to our attendees. So you'll see on the tables in front of you, you have index cards and pens. And we would ask that you would write your questions down on those index cards and we will start to collect those after our three presenters have concluded their remarks. So I wanna start by introducing Professor Rob Nadelson. He's all the way on my left here. Professor Nadelson is a nationally known constitutional scholar and author. He has been cited repeatedly by the U.S. Supreme Court, federal appeals courts, and state Supreme Courts, both by parties and by state and federal judges and justices. He is widely acknowledged as the country's leading active scholar on the Constitution's amendment procedure, and he's among the leaders on several other constitutional topics. 
Nadelson was a law professor for 25 years, serving at three different universities and actually teaching on a wide variety of constitutional topics. He has written more on Article 5 than anyone else. That is a big deal. And I think I already gave away my copy of the law of Article 5. If someone, there it is. This is the book that he wrote specifically on the law of Article 5. It's incredibly useful. If you're interested in getting one, you're welcome to see me after the workshop, and I'll make sure you get one. What's unique about Professor Nadelson, he's not just all academic. His expertise is really coupled with political experience and real-world experience in the law and in the business world. He has 11 years of experience practicing law, and he's also been a highly successful grassroots activist, running several successful statewide ballot measures. And in 2000, he came in second among five in the bipartisan Montana gubernatorial primary. So a lot of people don't know about that rich political, business, and legal background that Rob has. And with that, Rob, I'm going to let you kick us off. Thank you. Uh, the, uh, volume level okay? Just keep talking. He'll, fix, he'll, talking. he'll fix it. Okay. Rita, thank you for the introduction. Now I have to live up to it. Um, I love coming to ALEC. Uh, it was a long, there was a long time when I, I couldn't come, but I'm back. Uh, I think probably the highlight of this particular trip so far has been to learn that my good friend and Article 5 supporter, Ken Ivory, is back in the Utah legislature. <laughs> Um, I only have a few minutes, so I'm going to um, just make an observation about the many accusations about and misunderstandings about Article 5. Um, I, I'd like you to imagine the current, the, this situation. Somebody comes to you and says, you know, Representative or Senator, I don't think we should have any more federal jury trials anymore. I said, you say, what do you mean? Well, in Article 3 of the U.S. Constitution, it says that trials have to be by jury. But it doesn't tell us how many people are on a jury. It doesn't tell us how juries are selected. It doesn't tell us what the margin for the vote is for acquittal or for, for uh, conviction. And it also doesn't clarify because maybe a jury could run away and take over cases other than the ones assigned to it. So I think we ought to be really careful about having federal jury trials. And you might respond to that by saying, huh? I mean, the Constitution doesn't answer those questions directly, but we have hundreds, centuries of years of, of, of experience with juries in England and America. We have 200 years of court decisions dealing with juries. We know the answer to all those rules. Now, I mention this analogy because it is exactly comparable to the situation of a convention for proposing amendments, which is a kind of convention of estates. We have hundreds of years of convention experience, and we have hundreds of years of court cases on Article 5. 
So what's the difference between the two? The difference between the two is this. If you attend a civics course in high school, or a, if they still have them, or a political science course in college, or a history course such as Speaker Newt Gingrich used to teach, or a constitutional law course in law school, you will find that while they cover juries and they explain what juries are about, they explain that part of the Constitution, they don't talk about Article 5. The amendment process tends to be undercovered in public education with respect to um, uh, constitutional law. This is, I ran into the same problem at, at the end, or right after the uh, presidential election of 2020. I was brought in by several state legislators and asked to consult on what they should do if they thought that the the certified result for the presidential election in their state was not in fact accurate. And what I told them was that the U.S. Constitution gives to state legislatures and state legislatures acting alone without the governor the power to dictate who the electors are, the presidential electors are, and how they're appointed, and so they could do whatever they wanted. And the biggest struggle I had was dealing with legislative counsel because legislative council kept telling the legislators, no, you can't do anything without the governor. No, you can't do anything contrary to the state constitution or state law. And that is an inaccurate statement of constitutional law. But the, but the lawyers and legislative council generally suffered from the same problem that a lot of commentators have on Article 5. They'd never studied the area. You know? You go to law school, you, you study the First Amendment, you study the Fourteenth Amendment, you study how the Commerce Clause has metastasized into the all-consuming government clause, but you don't study anything about the amendment process and you don't study anything about presidential elections. But the precedents are still there. The precedents are still there. And so when people tell you things like, we don't know how the convention is composed, what that tells you is they haven't studied those precedent, precedents. Now, Back in the 1960s and 70s, people on the left took advantage of this public ignorance. There were, there were movements at that time, as there are today, for, for various conservative amendments. Uh, people started talking about a balanced budget amendment. They talked about an amendment to override versus, Roe versus Wade. Fifteen states actually applied for a convention for such an amendment. And the liberal establishment was determined to stop this. And so in the 60s and 70s and early 80s, academics and liberal public opinion molders wrote a series of articles and gave congressional testimony and talked to the press about how nobody knows what a convention for proposing amendments is really about, that it could be comprised in any way, I mean, we just don't know, and that it could run away and it could do all sorts of horrible things. One of the most horrible things that was suggested by one liberal spokesman was it could move the capital to Topeka, Kansas. <laughs> now, I frankly don't think that's a bad idea, but that's really unlikely that a convention would do that, right? Or be empowered to do that. And so they were the, they were the source of the myths that you hear that get repeated by people on the right. In other words, let me repeat that. Almost all the talking points you hear from people on the right were invented by opinion molders on the left 
to stop constitutional amendments, to balance the budget, and to overturn Roe versus Wade. That's where they get their stuff. Let me give you one example. Some of you may be familiar with the lobbying efforts of Eagle Forum. Eagle Forum distributes a list of questions. They call them unanswerable questions. Nobody can answer these questions. Well, they've almost all been answered, but where do the questions came from? Answer, they came from a 1979 Law Review article written by Professor Larry Tribe of Harvard, a liberal with close ties to the Kennedy clan. Okay? That's what Eagle Forum is distributing. So that's where that stuff came from. Now I want to address one more issue, uh, and it has to do, it's one that's been raised fairly, fairly recently in particular. It's an argument that goes like this. They're not respecting the Constitution now. What makes you think that amendments will make any difference? Amendments will make no difference. When someone makes that argument to me, it tells me something about the person making the argument. It tells me that the person has very little knowledge of American history and the impact that amendments have had on American history. Arguably about half the people in this country, a lot of people in this room, could not vote today without a constitutional amendment. Without constitutional amendments, we would not have the Bill of Rights. And by the way, the Bill of Rights were passed because the states threatened to hold an Article V convention. The states would still be able to institute slavery or oppress racial minorities if it were not for constitutional amendments. And presidents of the United States could run for re-election over and over and over again until they died in office, as Franklin Roosevelt did, if it were not for constitutional amendments. Here's the fact. Constitutional amendments have made enormous impact on American history. They continue to do it. Where would we be without the First Amendment or the Second Amendment or any of the other amendments I've cited? They, in fact, are respected more, fortunately or unfortunately, than the original Constitution. Amendments work. They are one of the most powerful reform tools that Americans have for recalibrating their system when they see problems. I'm going to stop there. I'd be happy to take any questions after my fellow panelists have spoken. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rob. Next, we will hear from Senator Rick Santorum, who served his country and the people of Pennsylvania in the U.S. House for four years and in the U.S. Senate for 12 years. He was well known in Washington for his unwavering commitment to limited government, fiscal responsibility, and the rights of the unborn. He spearheaded a nearly successful bid to propose a balanced budget amendment, exposed congressional banking and post office scandals, and worked to help Americans to get off the welfare rolls. After leaving Congress, he was a candidate for the Republican nomination for president in 2012, when he won 11 states and nearly 4 million votes. 
and he and his wife Karen are parents to eight children. Senator Santorum is now a senior advisor to the Convention of States project. And you probably knew most of that already about him, but here's something you might not know. Rick Santorum is a gentleman farmer. He grows fruit trees and berries. He makes his own jam to give for gifts. And he is a beekeeper. Who knew? There you go. <laughs> That's a honey of an introduction. There you go. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Rob uh, took well over his time, so I'm going to shorten my remarks. Um, <laughs> And because his is more important for you to hear than, than, than what I had here, and you, you, many of you just heard me uh, talk a few minutes ago. Um, you know, it's, uh, let me just tell you, I, I think I alluded to the fact that I was not a supporter of, of, of Convention of the States for a long time, and that's because uh, way back when, uh, when I was running for president, um, uh, a woman named Phyllis Schlafly came and talked to me, and she was in, in well into her 90s at the time, and she wanted to talk to me. This was important about this convention of the states. And so she sat down and she laid this all out. And Phyllis and I were very close. We were very good friends. We worked together on many issues. And, and so I sort of stepped aside. And uh, I also happened to be a very close friend of Mark Levin's. And at one, you know, we used to have breakfast together on a fairly regular basis. And I sat down and, and told him about that. And of course, Mark is low key and as mild mannered as Mark Levin is, uh, you know, erupted on me in the, in the Bob Evans and uh, where we were sitting having breakfast and sort of ripped me up one down and down the other. And so I said, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm avowedly neutral. I have friends on this side and friends on that side. And so I'm for my friends. And, um, and so I, uh, I, I sort of stayed away from, uh, from the issue. And so, uh, until uh, this, really, this past summer, and uh, once, uh, as I mentioned before, and uh, you know, Mark brought it up to my attention, and I, I was, you know, hesitant because I hadn't really studied the issues. Most important thing, and that's why I really, you need to hear from Rob and, and Mark less from me, because uh, they they know this issue inside and out, and you need to. I mean, I always say, as a legislator, the most powerful thing you have is information, and you make a lot of bad decisions because you got bad information, not because you're bad people, because you 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 have bad judgment. It's usually because you have bad information. And, you know, like I was talking about Newt. I mean, Newt's, I trust Newt's judgment. Newt's a good man. He's, it, but, you know, he has bad information. And, and it's possible because, as, as Rob said, there's a lot of bad information out there. You know, he mentioned that it come from Lawrence Tribe. Well, the other place that Phyllis got her stuff from was from Justice Warren Berger. Justice Warren Berger. Do you know who Justice Warren Berger is? He was the chief justice during Roe versus Wade and was the sixth vote. That's, that's who we're now relying on to, to tell us what an Article 5 convention looks like? A Supreme Court justice that doesn't, doesn't want to have his power limited to, to reform the Constitution, which they've been doing now for the past 50 or 60 years, basically just blowing a hole through the Constitution? Yeah, Congress ignores the Constitution, but you know what they don't ignore? They don't ignore the amendments. If you look at it, where they ignore is they ignore the body of the Constitution. But when the amendments are passed, that, well, you hear people talk about the 10th Amendment, you talk about the 14th Amendment, talk about that. You hear all these amendments they talk about, and they stand by them. But the Commerce Clause, oh, you can, yeah, we can, yeah, those founders got that wrong. Look, we're a society that thinks all great thought happened when they were alive. That, you know, the Greeks, ah, oh, they were idiots. You know, they, you know, they didn't know what they were talking about. We're the smart people, right? So think about the power of a constitutional amendment passed today. Even with those who may not necessarily agree with us, they, they, it has weight. 
So don't buy this argument that, that's, that, that, that somehow or another constitutional amendments are not impactful. They are huge, they are transformational. And, and that's what we need. We need, we need a time in our country right now, we, we are at a point where we need something transformational to happen. And that's why as I studied this and I actually read this book, it is a, you know, Rob, it's not, you know, it's not the most great prose, don't, not, no offense. It's a legal treatise. It's a treatise, but it, thankfully it's not insufferably long. Um, and so, but it, just, it, actually just reading the, the first half of the book, you get both basically the feel of it. And, and I think you just gotta get comfortable with it, particularly those of you who are advocates, I know there's some here. Um, when I was an advocate, I had to know more than everybody. I had to anticipate every question. And so, you know, if you're gonna do this important work, and it is important, as I said next door, I don't think there's anything more important you can be doing in the, in the legislature. Everything else you're doing, everything else that you're doing affects your state. This affects the nation and frankly the world. And so you wanna, and I know many of you think I'll run for Congress someday, I'll run for Senate someday. This is bigger than anything. This is bigger than anything you'll do. This is the most important thing you're gonna do as a legislator. Think about that. Think about a, a, a convention of the states that fundamentally restores federalism to this country and, and power to people and individual rights and liberty. And you can do that as a state legislator. Man, wow. Wow. What an opportunity. So that's really what I want to leave with you is that you don't get very much of a chance. And it's within our grasp. I mean, 31 states. And the problems we have, by and large, are folks on the right. It's the folks on the right, Phyllis's group and others who, you know, don't trust. You know, they're just afraid. I mean, I get it. I mean, a lot of bad things have happened in this country for, in their lifetime, and they're afraid of, I hate to say it, us. They're afraid of, of what this world today will do to something they love. I get it. Boy, do I get it. But it's happening. It's not like, things are gonna get better on their own. It's happening. And at some point, we have to take a leap of faith. And I think what Rob, and the reason I'm gonna stop here, is, and you should talk to Rob and Mark, is that it's not that big of a leap of faith. There really is well-structured to make sure that we can keep this on the guide rails. And remember, in the end, the greatest fail-safe of this, of this process is you need 38 states to ratify a constitutional amendment. I mean, no crazy amendment's gonna come out of that convention that's gonna get 38 states that's gonna harm this country. It just won't happen. So, I, and the, the other thing is, you folks are the ones that are gonna be appointing the delegates. And you're gonna have, at the time, 34 states. I mean, it's, it's, it's the time. It's the time. And it's your moment to do something great for America. For forever. Not just for your lifetime, but forever. Thank you, Rick. Before I go to Mark, I want to just remind you that you do have those note cards on your table, so be thinking about what you would like to ask our experts and write your questions down, and then we will have someone collect those cards. Mark Meckler, as you know, is the president of Convention of States Action, which now has over five million supporters and activists representing every single state legislative district in the nation. 
Mark appears regularly on TV, radio, and online discussing the conservative grassroots perspective on political issues. Before Convention of States, Mark was the co-founder of Tea Party Patriots. He left that organization in 2012 to implement this constitutional solution to take power from DC and return it to the sovereign citizens of the states. Mark has a BA from San Diego State University right here in town and a law degree from University of the Pacific. He practiced law for two decades. I know he doesn't look that old, but <laughs> two decades. From February 2021 to May 2021, Mark served as the interim CEO at Parler to help bring the free speech social media company back online and equip it for a strong future. Mark and his wife, Patty, Patty is back here. Say hi, Patty, she is here. <laughs> Mark and Patty have been married more than 27 years with one son who just completed his service with the Marine Corps and is now a third, third year. year law student and a daughter who recently graduated from Hillsdale College and works in education policy reform. And I'm gonna give you two things that you might not know uh -oh. about Mark. He's uh -oh. getting nervous. <laughs> the first one is that his background on his tablet is a picture of his Great Dane the face of his Great Dane, it's, it's really cute. And the second one is that recently in a trip to the Pennsylvania State Capitol, after having his luggage lost in an airline snafu, Mark showed up and did legislative meetings and a committee presentation in Pennsylvania wearing a Hell No Joe t-shirt <laughs> with a picture of a large, AR. an AR. <laughs> Mark? <laughs> well, I'm dressed more appropriately today. We'll start with that. At least Rita was there with me looking appropriate. Uh, look, uh, we, you've heard from somebody who's an absolute expert on Article 5. I would say the expert in the country on Article 5. Uh, you've heard from somebody who's been at the pinnacles of the American system of governance, who's been in Washington, D.C., and seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. So I think these are people who are actually far more expert than I am at any of this, at the problems that our country faces, and also at the solution, the, the technical solution, the Article 5 solution given to us by the founders. I'm not an expert in a lot, but I am an expert at grassroots politics. And I've been engaged in grassroots politics now since 2009. I can't even count the amount of miles that I put on my body all across the country. I do about 200, 250,000 miles a year on the airlines. And I've been in 48 states in the last few years. I've been in 16 states just in the last 90 days. And what I can tell you, one, is that the American people are pissed off. They're angry with what they see going on in Washington, D.C. They feel disempowered, they feel disenfranchised, and they don't know what to do. In a lot of corners of this country, they lack hope. I don't lack hope. And the reason I don't is because I actually know all of them. Because I have this strange opportunity, this privilege, this blessing to travel all over the country and meet these people in Manhattan, in Los Angeles, in San Francisco, in places where you wouldn't think you would meet so many liberty-loving people. It doesn't matter where I go. It doesn't matter the state. It can be Kansas, Oklahoma, Rhode Island, Delaware. I meet liberty-loving grassroots people all across the country, and I meet people who are willing to be in the fight, who are willing to commit themselves. 
If you're at the breakfast, you saw hundreds of pictures go by of grassroots activists all over the country. We're playing them in here. This is going on, the pictures you saw, that's not from some unusual event. Those events, I'm not exaggerating when I say this, are taking place every single day in the United States of America. There are convention of states, picnics, lunches, parades, meetings in the legislature, people going to gun shows every single day. We have a channel in our team where these photos show up and every day there are new photos from events around the country. We literally have tens of thousands of these photos and thousands of hours of video footage. And I tell you that because I want you to have the same hope that I have because I know these people are out there and I know that they're in the fight. And they're in the fight because what they know is what Rick said, which is Washington, D.C. will never reform itself. I'm going to repeat that. It will never reform itself. Not under Donald Trump, not under Ronald Reagan. Right? So we've had two turns here, I would say, in modern American history for conservatism to reform Washington, D.C. And this isn't to say we shouldn't send the best people we possibly can to D.C. We always should. We should elect the best people to the state legislatures, the best people to D.C., but to expect them to fix themselves is a fool's errand, and the American people know this. You know, when I travel around, one of the things that I get to do is I get to meet these extraordinary people, and I meet them in mass, and I meet them individually. Now, this year, this summer, I was at the Kentucky State Fair. It was a real first time for me, huge state fair, really incredible experience. So I went to the state fair because the state legislature actually holds interim hearings at the state fair. Never seen anything like this. Awesome idea. Because there's so many of their citizens come in for the state fair. They hold these hearings. People actually get to come in and see how government works. And so there was a hearing on Convention of States. This is the middle of the week. Literally, I think it was a Wednesday. It's the middle of the day. And people had to pay to get in. Not to get into the hearing, but pay to get into the state fair if they wanted to go to one of these hearings. And so I went into this hearing not knowing what to expect, never done one of these things at a state fair. It was in a room bigger than this, and we had probably show up at the hearing in Convention of States t-shirts somewhere between 150 and 200 activists. It was absolutely astounding. It took my breath away. You looked out in the audience like this, and what you saw was nothing but Convention of States t-shirts. I went into several of the other hearing rooms, a couple of people here and there at, in these hearing rooms, but you had a packed hearing room of activists who paid to get in to go watch a legislative hearing about Convention of States. It's incredible. These people are rising up because they have hope. They believe we can actually do something. To be blunt, they believe we can get our hands around the throat of the federal government and shove it back in the constitutional box. And that's what motivates them. So I see that in mass everywhere I go. I see it individually too. I'm gonna tell you a story, it's a little bit hard to tell. We had an activist whose name is Tara. She's from North Carolina. I met her many times. She was at every single event that I ever went to in North Carolina. She would be there no matter what. She was, if it was legislature, if it was anything, if it was block walking, Tara would show up. And we started doing block walking, which we do on an organized basis all over the country right now. Tara stepped up and she became our block walking captain. She was in charge of organizing all block walking in the state of North Carolina. Volunteer. I don't know how much time she was putting in, 40 hours a week, probably, at least, on a volunteer basis. Uh, Tara came down with COVID this year, and she was in the hospital, and she was very ill, and she was worried about her country while she was in the hospital. 
not about herself, not about her health. She was so worried about her country and what she was going to leave behind and, and the job that she was not going to be able to do that she actually made a call from her hospital room to appoint somebody to take over for her before she passed. This is what I see around this country when I travel. I see people that are this dedicated to this cause. It's not because of me or Rick or Rob or Rita. It's because these people know that the country is at stake. America was founded by people like Tara. Literally, regular people, not famous people, not necessarily wealthy or powerful people, but by regular people who realized that the principle of liberty was at stake. The idea of freedom was at stake in the American Revolution. And people like Tara and those hundreds of people I met in Kentucky and the thousands and tens of thousands I meet all over the country have always stood up when America was at risk. I would add that there were always people who were scared to stand up too and who didn't stand up. That's fine because the people who stood up saved the country despite the people who weren't willing to stand. Your grassroots are involved in this, but they're also involved in so much more. They understand that elections are important. Convention of states in one way or another, according to the legal constraints in each state, participated in over 250 elections around the country during the last cycle. Absolutely incredible. In some cases, directly being engaged in the elections where the law allowed it. A lot of them did that on their own where we as an organization couldn't be involved. There were get out the vote activities all over the country and we expect and plan that in the 2022 cycle we'll be involved in over 400 elections around the country. So you're going to see them in your states, involved in your state legislative elections in one way or another all over the country. It's not enough, they understand it's not enough. The Convention of States is important, it's the most important thing that you can do, I agree with Rick, but it's not enough. We have to elect good people as well. You know, in some states we've already passed. Rita talked about 15 states we've already passed. And you might think, well, what do they do after they already pass the resolution? Well, the answer is they get involved in everything else, anything they're passionate about. They're involved in pro-life stuff. They're involved in pro-Second Amendment stuff. They're involved in property tax reform. They're involved in ballot reform and election integrity issues all over the country because we have trained them up how to be effective advocates within our political system. COS gives people hope. Without hope, we have nothing. They look at Washington, D.C., they have no hope. You literally are their hope. If you do this, if you raise the flag and say, I'm going to be the one, I'm going to be the champion, I'm willing to be the person that travels the state to talk about this, I'm the person that's going to read the Article 5 book, I'm the one that's going to take the arrows of the people who oppose. If you do that, they will follow you and they will love you, and they will work for you, and they will work on other stuff too for you, the th other things that you're passionate about. It's time for us to fix the country, and we have the opportunity to do so, and the only question is, will we have the courage? And now it's your turn to get your questions answered. I see some being passed over to Catherine. If we could have Dave and Grant maybe just come to the center aisle. Oh, wow. Great. People have questions. And the questions have answers. <laughs> <laughs> At least we hope so. <laughs> yeah. So. Catherine, bring one up. So yeah. Can How come we didn't get to say something about you that nobody knows? Yeah. 
because I'm, I'm the moderator. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, here's a question. I'm just going to throw it out there and any, any one of you experts can answer. Could the active support of the President of the United States help us to get to 34? I assume you mean the former president because this president is <laughs> um, Sure, look, uh, we need to pick up uh, three legislative houses. Well, f actually, uh, one, two, four legislative houses, one in Minnesota, one in Virginia, and then two somewhere else. Uh, or maybe more than that. It'd be great to have some room for error. So uh, as Mark mentioned, we're going to be, uh, we've got a plan. We're going to be focused on a handful of states and work diligently to try to flip those states in an election year where we should be able to flip a lot of a lot of districts obviously redistricting is going to play a role in that and you know uh, that may be depending on the state may be a problem for us because in some of the states we're trying to flip they don't control the legislature so things may be get tougher but the bottom line is well as redistricting happens we'll um, we'll make a uh, an assessment and and go out there and put real resources on the ground and uh, and work to try to uh, get to 34 hopefully this year if not we can wait till the Virginia Senate's up and 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 make it all about that uh, having the president President Trump on our team helping and focusing on state legislative races you know as as it is with the president you know there's always a little good and a little bad that comes along with the the equation um, and you know one of the great things about this effort is it's under the radar you know national media is not paying any attention to us that's a good thing and so uh, I'm not sure, I mean, I, I'll, I won't speak for Mark as to whether, you know, his endorsement and support would be helpful, but uh, we're, we're planning, uh, putting resources, people in place to, to get us to where we, you know, the safety's off and we got a live, a live weapon in our hands and that we can, uh, we can do something. Thank you. Here's one that I think is important. Yesterday's COS event included campaign reform as part of the agenda that would be part of a convention. This seems very dangerous. The left wants to get the First Amendment, wants to gut the First Amendment and abolish the Electoral College. Why shouldn't I be extremely concerned about this? Mark, you wanna? Yeah, I would say, uh, first to clarify, the event that took place was not a convention of states event. In fact, we politely declined to participate for the precise reason you bring up. Uh, there were groups that participated in that event to whom I am vehemently opposed. I think one is called American Promise, the other is Wolfpack. These are, in my opinion, radical leftist groups that intend to undermine the First Amendment of the United States of America. Specifically, their aim is to overturn by constitutional amendment the uh, Citizens United decision, which I think is one of the greatest free speech decisions in American history. If you're of the right, you might not know this history, but Ronald Reagan did a speech that was nationally televised called A Time for Choosing, one of the most important speeches in American conservative history. That was a paid speech, and essentially the regulations that were put in post that speech, uh, which were overturned by the Citizens United decision, were intended to prevent that speech from ever happening again. And so Citizens United opened the floodgates to free speech in the United States of America. And I think it is extraordinarily dangerous, unproductive, 
for us, for people who consider themselves conservatives, to invite that effort into our tent. Uh, initially, and one of the reasons we turned it down is when that event was promoted, it was actually said on the promotion for that event that we would all agree not to oppose each other's amendments. I'll be honest with you, I wouldn't even make that commitment in regard to amendments that would come out of a convention called under our application. Okay, that, that's the Nancy Pelosi approach to politics. You have, to, you have to pass it first before you can know what's in it. Uh, my attitude is, first of all, and I'll just say it clearly and unequivocally, I oppose those groups, Convention of States activists all across the country oppose those groups and oppose those efforts, and we believe it is incorrect, unproductive, and potentially dangerous to invite those groups into our movement. That was not a COS event. The Supreme Court and the founding era record tell us that a convention for proposing amendments is a kind of convention of states. There had already been about 20 conventions of states and colonies when the Constitution is written, and we've had about 20 more since that time, most recently in Phoenix, Arizona in 2017. And one of the rules that is always applied with convention of states is the convention is limited to the scope of the call. That is to say, the call defines the scope of the convention, and the convention cannot go beyond that. And in the 40 or so conventions of states and colonies we've had, no matter what you may have heard, there has never been a, quote, runaway. In other words, the commissioners appointed by the state legislatures or appointed pursuant to the direction of the state legislatures have always honored their instructions because they know they've got to go back home and face the state legislatures who sent them. So when, um, in the early days of Convention of States, the question became, what should be the scope of our own application? In other words, what should be the limit of the convention that we would like to see called? And I will tell you that the scope was kind of hammered out between Mike Ferris and me in my living room. <laughs> in, in, uh, in um, uh, Lakewood, Colorado. And the three items that we selected were number one, restraints on the fiscal powers of the federal government. Secondly, reductions in the power and jurisdiction of the federal government. And thirdly, term limits on federal officials, not just members of Congress, but also on executive branch and judicial officials. That's the scope of the convention. And when you think of those three elements, you can see how that, they, that one of the criteria we used to define them was to be absolutely sure that nothing could be done to weaken the Bill of Rights. Nothing should be done to weaken the Bill of Rights. And one of the problems I have with the uh, proposals of some of the groups that, that spoke yesterday is that they, in fact, want to reduce the scope of the Bill of Rights. That is not within uh, the Convention of States application. And frankly, it's not within the application of any group that at any time in the foreseeable future is going to be able to get to 34. At the event yesterday, Larry Lessig, Harvard Law School, who was the intellectual godfather of one of those groups, said, well, we need to work together because uh, the history of amendments shows that a purely partisan amendment is not going to pass. And therefore, we need to have both the left-wing amendments and the right-wing amendments 
on the table in order to get to a convention. With respect to uh, Larry Lessig, for my great respect, he's wrong about that. The history of constitutional amendments in this country, at least the controversial ones, had been, been mostly a history when one particular group of people with one particular collection of ideas get to a supermajority. So for example, when the Constitution was adopted, they didn't ask Tories to produce, you know, to participate in the process. And when the 14th Amendment, the 13th Amendment, the Civil War, War Amendments were adopted, they didn't have former Confederates participate in the process. What had happened is one group in American history had reached supermajority status and they amended the Constitution. Now there have been several, several, several uh, allusions to the fact that conservative legislators, legislatures now form a commanding majority of state legislatures in this country and that that number is likely to grow. I think we are on the cusp of a supermajority moment. And I think that supermajority moment is going to be best represented and the opportunity is going to be given to the Convention of States movement to do the things that need to be done in this country, which means restrain the fiscal powers of the federal government, limit the power and jurisdiction of the federal government, and impose term limits on federal officials. Thank you. Tell me about your thoughts on the urban-rural divide in America. Urban America seems to dominate politics because these are the most populous areas and tend to lean left. If the people appoint delegates to the Convention of the States, I fear rural America and rural America's voice will be lost or limited. I, I would argue just the opposite. I mean, I look at my state of Pennsylvania, for example. Um, you know, we control the state house, we control the state senate, and have for a long, long time. And yet, there are over a million more registered Democrats and Republicans in Pennsylvania. We have a hard time winning presidential elections, as you know, in Pennsylvania, yet we dominate the state legislature in Congress. Why? Just for the fact we, just that point, all their votes are concentrated in a very small group of people and it's hard to draw legislative districts that, uh, that they can win uh, because most of the legislative districts are 90 plus percent one party. Um, and so that's number one. And so and that's why we have an opportunity in many states because that trend is, is, is increasing, I would argue, um, on, on their side because there's such a, a special interest, uh, divisive party right now. They're appealing to just a core group. And so we, I, I look at this as an opportunity given the fact that most states are not uh, populated by heavily densely uh, metropolises like we have in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh or New York has in New York. Most states don't have those huge big cities. That, and so most states are gonna be controlled by Republicans. And most, that means rural voters, even though there are fewer of them, because of, just like the Electoral College, uh, they actually have an outsized, in a, in a process like this, they actually have an outsized uh, uh, grant of power under this process. So this is why this, in a, in a country that's deeply divided, you can say, how can, we, how can we achieve what Rob said we can achieve, which is approaching a supermajority in the states. Why? Because their population is concentrated and ours isn't. And, uh, and we, we, we have the opportunity as a result of that to, uh, to have 
have a supermajority, even though the country may not even, we may not even be in an absolute majority when it comes to people who agree with us, but because of the way uh, the, the concentration of votes has, has, uh, has changed in this country, we could actually accomplish it. So just the opposite. I, I agree with everything Rick has said, and I want to carry it uh, one step further to answer a question that sometimes comes up. As you know, in a convention of states, every state has one vote. I think that's something that Newt Gingrich didn't know yesterday when he made his comment about California dominating uh, the convention through all their delegates. Every state has one vote. California has the same vote as Vermont. Um, I heard recently a state legislator say, well, couldn't the convention change that? Couldn't the convention go to a proportional uh, form of representation? Yes, in theory it could, but here are the realities. In the 40 conventions of states we've had, there have been two efforts to try to change the voting pattern to a more proportional method, and they've been defeated. Actually, three efforts, and they've been defeated. Number two, two-thirds of the states are states with below average populations. Again, because of concentration of population that's, that the Senator mentioned. Two-thirds of the states have below average populations. That means that when you, the convention meets, it's one state, one vote, someone says, can we go to a proportional system, you would have to get you would have to get about half the states with below average populations to vote to disenfranchise themselves to give the power to the bigger states. Now, uh, I've been around the political game to know enough that that, that ain't going to happen, okay? States like Wyoming are not going to vote to give California more power. So, Anybody yeah. disagree with that in this room? Raise your hand. <laughs> So, so the reality... It's a ridiculous argument. <laughs> so the reality is that it's going to be one state, one vote, and I find great comfort from that. What is the relationship between Convention of States and the balanced budget amendment effort and U.S. term limits? And how does a legislator know which one to support? So the relationship is that all of us are participating in individual separate efforts to call an Article 5 convention for a particular purpose. In the case of Convention of States, it actually subsumes in essence the missions of the balanced budget uh, effort and the term limits effort in that we have the three-pronged approach, anything that would limit the scope, power, and jurisdiction of the federal government, anything that would impose term limits on federal officials, though this is broader uh, than U.S. term limits, which aims at Congress. So we would be aiming also at the deep state and, and potentially the federal judiciary as well. Uh, and then lastly, obviously, uh, balanced budget folks. And, and so everything that these other groups are working on is also part of Convention of States. And what that means is, in essence, there's a lot of parallels uh, there's a lot of continuity between what the three groups are doing. I would argue from being out in the field and being in legislatures in the vast majority of the states, like I said, I've been in 48 states. I don't think I've been in quite that many legislators. Legislatures probably 43, 45. Uh, that the difference, one of the fundamental differences is that what you see in Convention of States is absolutely entirely a grassroots movement. There are five million people. 
when you have a legislative hearing, for example, when I was in Minnesota, I think last year, Pete Hegseth showed up for us and we probably had 600, 700 people show up in the rotunda. And that is a major distinction between these efforts. I will say, though, we are running parallel efforts, and, and this is important, I'm gonna speak for our grassroots. Not for myself, but for our grassroots. Our grassroots do not support a balanced budget amendment alone. It's not that they're opposed to a balanced budget amendment. If you ask them if they believe in a balanced budget amendment, the vast, vast majority of them will say yes. They're in favor. If you ask them do they support it alone, they will tell you no. The same is true of term limits. If you ask the grassroots, what do you think about the idea of just term limits for Congress as a standalone effort. They will tell you that they are opposed to that. If you ask them, are they in favor of term limits? The vast majority of them will say yes. And the reason is that the grassroots are sophisticated. They understand the problems that face Washington, D.C. They believe, as I do, as we do as an organization, that imposing term limits alone on the United States Congress, I'll just be frank with you, I think it makes the problem worse. I've been in Washington, D.C. Frankly, I've been in the state capitals. Do we really want the bureaucracy to have uh, unlimited terms to be there forever when we're gonna rotate through legislators? I think that's very dangerous. Do we really want the staffers to be on the Hill for 30 years when the politicians have to rotate through? I think that's very dangerous. The staffers already have tremendous power on the Hill. And so that's why they're not in favor of term limits alone. And in regard to a balanced budget amendment, I think there is a danger in our grassroots that would agree with this, a balanced budget amendment alone alone allows the federal government to continue to impose unfunded mandates. It's not a restriction on the scope, power, and jurisdiction of the federal government. You've all suffered under unfunded mandates or under mandates, uh, under funding with strings tied to them. So this is the reason that these groups are separate. They're conducting separate efforts, and our grassroots support the three-pronged approach to a convention of states. I would add one last thing. When we designed this project, we looked at the entirety of American history in regard to calling a convention. It's never happened. Why has it never happened? Well, one, I would argue it's hard. It's the highest bar in the American system of governance, getting to 34 states, two-thirds of states, a supermajority, and then a super, super majority to ratify an amendment. This is a high bar. And we knew that we would have to have enough issues that the American people cared about to draw enough support to the table from people who are taking their kids to soccer practice, going to Bible study on Wednesday night, just managing their own lives, keeping their own jobs. To get that kind of passion and support, we would be, have to be able to show people that they had a chance to get their hands around the throat of the federal government and put it back in the constitutional box. None of the individual efforts do that. The only thing that provides the narrative that drives five million people to participate in convention states, by the way, a thousand people join the organization every day on average. The only thing is the full package. Thank you, Mark. And since Mark opened the door a little bit to the discussion of term limits, we do have a couple of related questions on term limits that I think I'll pitch to you, Rick. Where is term limits in the Constitution? Shouldn't the voter decide? And instead of term limits on Congress, why not term limits for the people who run the federal agencies? Well, yeah, the only term limit is was by constitutional amendment, which is a term limit on the on the executive, uh, on the president. Um, and we keep to that, by the way, uh, even though many were afraid Donald Trump wouldn't, but he uh, he didn't get a chance. Uh, and, and the second question was, um, what was the second one? 
um, shouldn't the voter decide? Well, that's, I mean, that's really what this process is about. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's allowing people closer to the people to be able to make these decisions. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't have constitutional, Article 5 doesn't allow constitutional amendment by, by referendum, thank God. Um, <laughs> California has proven that the, the, the problems of pure democracy is not, not the greatest idea. I mean, a representative democracy is the way to go. And they provided an Article 5 convention to have you be the voice of the people in, uh, in, in structuring that. And so, um, yeah, and the idea of, of having, uh, a, as Mark mentioned, having the opportunity to go at the deep state. And the deep state's real. I mean, it's just real. You all know this from your own legislature, your own state governments. I mean, you have people who sit in these commissions and sit in these, you know, positions for 20, 30, 40 years, and you know they'll look at you and say, "Yeah, governors go, legislators go. I'm going to be here. I'm protected." Well, maybe not. Maybe we can put something that says that you know any GS 13 or pick a pick a number. Uh, you know, you can serve for 10 years and you're gone. You have to move. Uh, I mean. There's a tremendous opportunity for, uh, you know, some people call it mischief. I would say, uh, you know, responding to the reality, you know, look, our founders didn't anticipate a behemoth of a government like we have today. And, uh, and so, you know, it takes a little refreshing. And I have a lot of confidence that, uh, I mean, the people in this room who end up passing this thing and getting this done and calling a convention, you're also gonna be the people who are gonna be appointing the uh, commissioners and maybe many of you will be commissioners yourself, part of the delegation that go to that convention. Um, that's a, you know, uh, I have a lot more, I have a lot more faith in you than I do, frankly, uh, the folks in Washington D.C. and as as well as you know our, our courts in uh, in getting this right. Uh, I'm I'm sort of with the William F. Buckley thing. I'd uh, I'd rather be governed by the first hundred people in the Boston phone book than by the faculty of Harvard. Um, and uh, you, you look much more like the first 100 people in the, in the Boston phone book than you do the faculty of Harvard. Thank God. Thanks, Rick. Well, we are unfortunately almost out of time, so I am going to pitch this last question to Mark Meckler and ask him to wrap us up. And I think this will do nicely because it kind of circles us back to where we started. And the question is, who are your endorsers and supporters? Yeah, and we have signage up here at the front of the room that talks about this. It might be a little bit hard to see, uh, but what you see over there on my left is a list of our supporters. There's actually a QR code at the top. You could scan and see the list. And I would say that if you look at this list, you see Mark Levin and Sean Hannity and Glenn Beck and Ben Shapiro and Ron DeSantis, and on and on and on and on. Basically, every major national figure that you can think of, maybe with the exception of Newt, and we'll work on that, <laughs> but pretty much every major national figure that you can think of in the United States of America who's spoken on the subject is in favor. You can also, I think, judge an effort uh, by its enemies. <laughs> and over here to my right, what you see, and again, QR code will give it to you in their own words, basically. I I'm not just saying this. This is a list of all the groups on the radical left in the United States of America who oppose the Convention of States 
They actually made it easy for us because they all signed a press release four years ago on Good Friday. It's over 250 groups. It's led by George Soros's Common Cause and Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. And when you look at the list, it's a little bit scary. It's La Raza, it's MoveOn.org, it's Code Pink, it's Daily Cause, it's Planned Parenthood. And again, the whole list is here. I'm gonna say something that just sounds outrageous. It's every leftist group in America, radical leftist group in America that stands for, I would argue, the destruction of America, the, the destruction of babies in the womb, the destruction of life itself. They hate America, they wanna destroy America, and they're against convention of states. So I'd ask that before you leave the room, you scan these QR codes and you compare them on, on your own phone, on your own device, and ask yourself this question. If all those people are in support, a lot of them, all of them, a lot smarter than me. If all these people are against, None where are you? you? None of them smarter than you. Yeah, thank <laughs> you. <laughs> yeah, and so this is really important. There is a dividing line on this issue in America. And if you find yourself as somebody who calls themselves a conservative, and I know there are those here who are very conservative. I wouldn't say call themselves a conservative. They are very conservative on virtually everything. And you look at this list, I think you ought to ask yourself, why am I in this camp? So I'll close with that and turn it back to you, Rita. Thank you so much for being here and attending our workshop today. Feel free to take those materials on the table. There's a pocket guide to Article 5. Or there are a lot of great resources in here. There are also copies of the Harvard Law Review article written by Michael Ferris addressing the myth of the runaway convention. And so I think you will find those insightful. Again, if you're interested in getting a copy of Professor Nadelson's book, feel free to see me right after we conclude First one here. up here can get a signed copy from Professor There Nadelson. we go. Oh, yeah. wow. <laughs> and so, what about individual uh, Watch the rush. People will just be, <laughs> don't get hurt on your way up here. Yeah, right. Finally, we do have a little bit of time left on our schedule for ind individual meetings with legislators later this afternoon. So if you're not already signed up and would like to meet with our experts, ask your questions, talk about the strategy for your individual state, please come and see me after the program. Thanks again and have a great day. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com slash pod. Thank you for listening.